Welcome to the Accra Community Church Podcast. We know that God is interested in everything you are and everything you do. In this financial literacy series, 90 and 10, we look beyond the tithe and the offering and focus 100% on the financial blessings God showers on His children. How do you make money? How do you manage it? How do you grow it? What are the best ways to invest? What can you do now to secure your financial future? Well, for answers to these questions and more, listen. I have a few points I want to share and ask that God would hopefully take over and help us to learn one or two things. Um, To make it easy, I've coined an acronym. And I won't tell you what it is, but I'll be telling you each of the items. And then as we go, in the end of the day, we'll figure out what acronym it is. But then, if there's one thing I want you to remember today, I don't mean to sound disrespectful, but somebody told me a few years ago, and I've never forgotten, it is that your houseboy might be wealthier than you. If you don't remember anything today, when you walk away, just remember this, that Somebody told me so many years ago that your houseboy might be wealthier than you. And I think that um, it's a good place to start the conversation from. Why, how, how can your houseboy be wealthier than you? It doesn't seem to make sense. So let's start. I think the first thing that we need to understand before we even discuss the concept of wealth and managing the 90 and the 10 is the basic difference between riches and wealth. There's a lot of literature out there, and I'll try to um, be brief in my presentation so we can focus on more questions and answers. But I found different definitions for riches, different definitions for wealth. But I settled on, on one which I personally relate with, which is that, so basically, acronym number one is R. So it starts R, which is riches versus wealth, which is our point number one. Um, What is riches? What is wealth? Most people's understanding when you talk about a rich person and a wealthy person is we think of money, we think of cash, we think of houses, we think of nice cars. But one thing I've learned and research proves this is that generally speaking, riches is measured in monetary terms. So cash, bank account, cars, houses, that is riches. But the difference is that when you talk about wealth, it's actually measured in time, not in value. So if you have a million CDs in your account, you are rich. But if your monthly expenditure is 1.2 million, you are actually poor. Whereas wealth, is measured in time. So if somebody has only 10,000 CDs in their bank account, but their monthly expenditure is 1,000 CDs, it means that that person can survive for 10 months if they don't earn any other income. Whereas the guy who has a million CDs in his account, whose monthly expenditure is 1.2 million, would actually not be able to survive for a month if they don't earn any more income. So the first point I want us to take away is that When you talk about riches versus wealth, riches are measured in monetary terms, i.e. cash, assets, etc. Wealth is measured in time. And the difference is so basically your wealth is a definition of how long you can continue to survive at your current level of expenditure if all your sources of income would cease. That is wealth. So a wealthy person is one who can comfortably live on X period of time if their source of income would cease. And so when we say Dangote is wealthy, it's because the guy does not have to work for the rest of his life, but he will not go hungry. He's wealthy. A lot of the people we see on the streets of Accra driving very nice cars with the, you know, the Range Rovers and the Land Cruisers are rich people, not necessarily wealthy people. And the reason is that the guy may have a very nice house in Trasaco worth $2 million. He may have a $200,000 car. He may have one nice apartment in London. So his total asset, when you put it together, might be 
4 million, but the $2 million apartment might have a mortgage of 1.8 million. The $200,000 car might have a loan of $180,000. The house in London might actually have a bigger load of worth more than the value of the house. So collectively, when you net off that person's assets against their liabilities, they may actually be in a negative position. So to the world, because of the nice house, because of the nice car, because of the nice money in the bank account, they look rich. They are actually rich, but they are not wealthy because if that person we're talking about happens to be, say, the MD of a company, and his salary is $50,000, and he lives on $40,000 and saves 10. Now, if that guy has $40,000 in the bank account as his savings, it means that if he gets fired in any particular month, he can only survive for one month at the current level of expenditure, and there will be crisis. Whereas, if your houseboy is paid 500 CDs, and he's very smart like mine, he probably saved 300 CDs and spends 200. You find out that the guy has savings of 3,000. But because he lives on 200 CDs, if you fired him for one full year, the guy will be comfortable. He doesn't have to beg. He will not go hungry. He will be fine because he can live for a year at his current level of expenditure. Whereas you, the house owner, who is probably making 20000 you are spending 19000 a month and saving 1000 And so your savings of 20000 you have would last you only one month if you lost your job. So the first principle I want us to take away is the difference between riches versus wealth. Riches are measured in monetary terms. Wealth is measured in time. The second principle is assets versus liabilities. So that's A. Asset versus liabilities. The general definition, and I don't want to get too technical, of an asset is anything of value that brings returns. And a liability is anything that takes money away from you. So I know we've heard from various books we've read and from various things we've heard that an asset is anything that's a property that has value. Not necessarily. In wealth creation, an asset need is not only something that has value, but it must actually bring returns. And a liability is something that takes away from you. So I go back to the same person we had created, the illusional person we created earlier, the MD of a bank, who has a lovely house in Trasaco, has a nice apartment in London, which is probably worth half a million pounds. Um, he has a mortgage on that property. Maybe he probably paid 10%, which is 50,000 pounds, borrowed for 50,000 pounds. So he's paying a mortgage of 5,000 pounds every month. Now that's a beautiful property sitting in the central London and he probably goes to London once every month or five times a year and stays there. So because it is a house, by the general definition of an asset, we say, oh, he has an asset in London. Relatively correct, but in wealth creation, that is not an asset. It is a liability. And I'll tell you why. One, it is not generating any income. Two. He's actually paying a mortgage. Three, just by having that property every year, I think on a £500,000 uh, house, roughly you would pay about £20,000 in uh, property taxes at the end of the year. Four, you pay something we call council tax. Five, I can list like seven different payments you make on a yearly basis just by owning that property. So in considering that person's portfolio, he has a nice property in London. It's an asset. But in wealth creation, it is actually a liability because that thing is sucking money on a monthly basis from your small pot of income that you have. So by the time you pay the mortgage, which includes interest, by the time you pay property taxes, homeowners' fees, council taxes, repairs, plumbing, every other cost that that property is sapping out of your income, you would find out that that is no longer an asset, but it's a liability. So from wealth creation perspective, the definition of an asset is anything that has value that generates income. And a liability is anything that takes income away from you. So there, you realize that this property this guy has in London is straightforward a liability. Now, if you contrast it with somebody who has a small studio apartment somewhere in Kumasi or in Cantonment or somewhere, it might be worth only 100,000 pounds or dollars, 
um, but he gets somebody to rent it out for $1,000 a month, which means at the end of the year, it is bringing $12,000. Now, even if he took a mortgage to buy that property, roughly $100,000 property, if you pay 20%, which is and borrow 80%, that's 80,000, roughly you should pay around $900 a month in your mortgage, $850 roughly. So for that person, when you pay the $850 mortgage a month, because you're making a rent of $1,000, it means that every month you have a net income of $150 over and above the value of your mortgage. So for that person, that's an asset. Because yes, it does have value, but it is actually generating a return. So if you have an asset that does not generate a return for you, from a wealth creation perspective, it is not an asset. A good example is you buy a piece of land. Great. Our grandfathers taught us that land is an asset. Now, if you have that land, it's a good land, maybe in some prime area, but you have to pay land guards every month to guard it. Every week you have somebody they're going to check to make sure somebody is not trying to steal your land. Every now and then somebody comes to write my property, then you go and clean, then you go and paint. Then you have to pay soldier men and policemen to be guarding to fight against land guard. If you're constantly incurring cost on that land and the direct proportional increase in the value of the land over time does not outweigh how much you are paying to maintain your ownership of that land, the land becomes a liability. Generally speaking, we all know that when you make money, our parents say the first thing you should do is buy land. Yes, if you own the land and it is not taking money away from you, it could be an asset. And I say it could be an asset because if the land is a land that does not increase in value, it may not necessarily be an asset. If it's flat, it's okay. It can add to your portfolio, but it's not an asset. But if you have land, even if you haven't built on it, but if nobody is worrying you, you don't have to pay land guards, you don't have to pay maintenance costs, there's no cost associated with the land. Now, to the extent that over time the land is increasing in value, then although you're not getting the cash, you're actually making returns on the land. The returns are just deferred. You have not sold the land, so you have not realized the returns. So yes, a land could be an asset, but only if it is not taking money away from you, in which case it could become a liability. Now, what is a liability? A liability is anything that takes money away from you and does not bring value or return. So, for example, a car could be a liability. If you work and you have a car that enables your work, it's an asset. Because, yes, you are spending on the maintenance, on the payment, and all the costs of the car, but because that car enables your work or your trade, it is bringing return by way of, for example, the efficiency it creates for your business, your ability to go for meetings, or being able to go to work and back every day, that is a form of a return. So the car, although people say, oh, a car takes money away from you, so it's a liability, a car can be an asset. There are certain people where if they don't have the car, it impedes mobility, and it directly reduces the ability to generate money. So for such a person, a car is an asset. But if the car is, so for example, for somebody that does not work, really, it sounds a bit harsh, they should not have a car. Unless there's a direct value that you derive from having that car, which overrides the cost that you put into. So for example, if you have kids and they have to go to school, what is the opportunity cost of not having a car? If you have to take a taxi or Uber every day, if you add up the cost, it most likely would override the com combined cost of car ownership. So in that case, it makes sense to own the car. So your return might not necessarily be cash. Nobody's paying you for owning the car, but you are making money by the opportunity cost of the savings you made if you did not have a car and you had to rely on alternative forms of transport. So the second point here we're looking at is that we need to understand the difference between an asset and a liability. An asset is something of value that brings a return and a liability is anything that takes money away from us. Any questions? I feel that people. Can I go on? Hello? Yeah. Yes, yes, Are you guys with me? Okay. So, our point number three is B. And this is um, slightly controversial. Um, I've done a lot of reading on this subject, um, I've found my own information. It's about the people of Babylon. 
the Babylonians are said to be one of the wealthiest people that ever lived. They were some of the best traders in the world. And in those times, they conquered from Assyrians all the way. It used to be the biggest city at the time when Babylon was alive. And one of the things they did was that the Babylonians are believed to be very astute and very good investment people. I've done a bit of reading, and there's something called the Babylonian strategy in investment. It was not invented by me, so just, I'm quoting something that I have learned. Now, the Babylonian strategy has an interesting way of dividing your income. It says that your income you make is 100%. And they have a way how you should distribute the income, which starts by this. 10% you give to God. That's tight. 20% you use it to pay your future. That's investment. 30% use it to pay your past. That's mortgages. No, sorry. 30% used to pay your present. And that's supposed to be food, bills, utility, everything. That's 30%. And then the 40% use it to pay your past. And there we're talking of loans, mortgages, anything that you have enjoyed, that you are currently paying for. That's 30%. I'll take it again. So it's 100%. 10% tight or to God, 20% to the future, which is investment, 30% to the present, so living expenses, food, bills, and then 40% to the past. And so according to that strategy, the combined total of your monthly payment for loans, for accommodation, for car loans, or for whatever liability you're faced with, should not be more than 40% of your income. Now, this is quite interesting. Under the Labor Act under, or under Ghanaian law, generally speaking, when you are taking a loan, the total repayment should not be more than 40% of your net salary. And I did a bit of research, and this seems to be quite common in a lot of jurisdictions, that your loan repayment should not exceed 40% of your net salary. I'm not saying there's a correlation between this and the Babylonian strategy, but it does make sense that if you pay more than 40% of your salary in a loan on an obligation, the reality is that it might be quite difficult to survive on what is, what is left. So under this interesting strategy called the Babylonian strategy, it says that pay 10% to God, pay 20% to your future, pay 30% to your present, and 40% to your past. Now, if you add this for 10, 20, 30, 40, it gives you 100%. Um, this is my probably 14th year that I've been following this strategy. But the interesting thing is when you do it over time, once you get into the discipline, you are able to amend the percentages. This is just a guide. It doesn't mean you have to follow it. So for example, depending on your work with God, you realize that you might decide that you don't do 10% anymore. You can increase the tide to more than 10%. Then, depending on your consistency and your discipline, you can decide the investment. You don't want to do 20% anymore. You want to push it to 30%. Now, if you're like me, where you are scared of loans and you just don't take loans, it means that you actually have the freedom of the 40% that you don't do loans with. So you can actually then add that 40% to whatever you please. There were times in my life when I was saving 50% of all my income. Now, when we go, we would see further an explanation. I'm not saying it's easy. And sometimes, the way I'm saying it makes it sound like, oh, it's easy. It's not easy. But the most important thing is that you need to have the information. And once you have the information, then the next problem is the implementation. So with the Babylonian strategy, it says, don't forget, 10% to God. 20% to your future, that's investment, 30% to your present, and 40% to your past. Now, what I have done is that, okay, if you're able to take a loan and you pay off the loan, it means I freeze up the 40%. Once you are used to the discipline that a loan provides, because they deduct at source, it then actually is good for you to borrow further, even after you finish paying that loan, 
and put that money away in an investment in a way that it continue, you continue to suffer the 40% deduction because ordinarily it's very difficult to do the investment on your own. Are we following? So now the next point we have is another B, which is begin, be consistent, and be committed. Now, why begin? The biggest difficulty with investment and wealth is procrastination. We have all heard the good news, but we all decide that, oh, when I finish paying this loan, I will start. When I finish building this house, I will start. Um, when I finish educating my children, I will start. When I finish expanding my business, I will start. When I finish renting that store, I will start. With investment, the best time to start is now. And I always tell people, the biggest mistake the world has done and the disadvantage the world has done to investment is to make it sound like you need a million dollars to start. In actual fact, you need 10 cities to start. And I say 10 cities because it's the easiest. But really, in whatever multiples you're comfortable with, you need 10 cities to start, you need 100 cities to start, you need 1,000 cities to start. The amount is not as important as the time over which you build the wealth. And there's, we're going to look at time later, but let me say this, that time is the most important factor in wealth building. If you're 59 and you have one year to retire, and you decide to save 90% of your income, even if you save 90% of your income, it means that at the end of that one year, you would have saved roughly 1,000% of your income. Now, if you retire at 60 and God gives you life to 80 or 90, 1,000% of your income is not enough to survive you through your retirement. But if somebody starts at 20 and is saving 1% of their income and continues consistently until retirement, they will have a far bigger egg nest than you who started at 59 and was saving 90% of your income. Now, I did a very interesting scientific calculation. And when you go, you can go and test it. If you save 100 CDs every month, 100 CDs, one, 100 Ghana CDs, and you make a return of 20% on that 100 CDs, compounded, if you do that for 30 years, can somebody just give a guess, just a wild guess? How much do you think you would have? Just a guess. One or two guesses. How much do you think you have? 50,000. Another guess? 100,000. Yes, every month. A 20% return compounded for 30 years. Just a guess. One more guess. You get 3.4 million Ghana CDs. And this is not me that's saying it, it's Excel. Just when you go, test, test the formula. If you put 100 CDs away, I like the look of surprise. 100 CDs every month, consistently nonstop, at 20% return. And the assumption is that because you leave the money, so it's compounded. So in month one, month, month two, month one, one will get interest. Then in month three, the one for month one and month two, together with the interest, will also get interest. If you leave it for 30 years, it comes to 3.4 million CDs. This shows you that time is the most significant factor in wealth building. So begin means start not tomorrow, today. Whatever money you have in your pockets, please, after here, you chop it. Go and put it away. Start now and just allow the money to grow over time. So begin, be committed, and be consistent. And my second example on this begin now is I was watching a video, and the guy said something very interesting. He says that if somebody, if you decide that you want to get into shape, basically you want to be healthy, you want to work out, you want to get into shape, and you go to the gym. If you go to the gym and you spend one hour working out very rigorously, very, very rigorously for an hour, 
and you come back home, if you stand in the front of the mirror, what changes would you see? Nothing. If you go the second day, you do the same one-hour workout, you sweat very rigorous, you come back, you look at the mirror, you would see nothing. On the third day, if you go, you come back, you see nothing. But the interesting thing is that you know for a fact, if you continue to do that consistently every day, and you keep looking at the mirror every day, you cannot pinpoint the exact day when it happened, but over time, one or two or three years down the line, you get up, you look in the mirror, you compare, you tell, oh, actually, this workout has paid off. I've either lost some weight, or I've toned down, or I've slimmed down. So you cannot pinpoint the exact date or the exact moment at which the weight loss happened. But the fact that you started knowing very well that there's a goal in mind at the end, and when you do it consistently over time, you stand in front of the mirror and you know for a fact that, okay, I've toned down. I'm a slightly smaller version of what I used to be. The fat is gone. And it's the same with investment. Somebody asked me one time, so if I start putting these 100 cities away from me, would I ever be rich? Or when will I be rich? I said, I don't know. But one thing you know for a fact is that if you don't start, you don't stand a chance. But when you start, I can't tell you it's today. I can't tell you it's tomorrow. But when you do it consistently over time, one day, at some point, you look back and just like the exercise, you're like, oh, actually, I have this much. And at that point, all you then have to do is focus on maintaining what you've already created rather than still considering, oh, I will start tomorrow, oh, I will start tomorrow. So the best thing about this conversation is begin today. But when you begin, be committed and be consistent. And like the issue of the gym, eventually someday you will look back and realize, oh, I can see meaningful substance. I can see impact that this exercise I've been carrying out has yielded something. My next point is, if you remember the Babylonian strategy, we said 10% to God, 20% to the future, which is investment, 30% to the present, and 40% to the past. Now, the 20%, which is the future, is actually investment. So based on this principle, it means that ideally, you should be putting away 20% of all your income towards investment. Now, we've agreed that, yes, we're going to put it towards investment. Now, what investment, somebody would ask. So now let's look at the potential investments that we can put the money into. Um, I'll just put four sub-points under investment, and the first one would be entrepreneurship. If you save 20% of your money, it builds up into a sizable figure over time. You can decide to use it to start a small business. So the first one is entrepreneurship. The second one is you can use it to buy land and building. The third one is you can use it to buy bonds, B-O-N-D-S. I will explain all of them. And then the last one is you can buy stocks. So under investment, which is I, we have E-L-B-S, which is entrepreneurship, land and building, bonds, and then stocks. So the first one, entrepreneurship. Um, a lot of, especially the fintech businesses and the social media-related businesses of today, were basically people's hobbies that have become multi-billion dollar industries. With the entrepreneurship, people ask me, oh, I don't think I have it. I'm not covered. It's not necessarily correct. Some people are born entrepreneurs. Some people train to be entrepreneurs. It is possible to actually train somebody to be entrepreneurs. If you don't believe it, go and check with the Jewish people. When you are born, they throw in. In fact, forget the Jews. Let's come to our own Ghana. The Lebanese, the Indian families. The, there are families where, by virtue of the family that the children belong to, when you are born, I know kids who are in Lincoln paying $30,000 school fees, but every time when they're on vacation, they go and sit in their parents' store and they're selling. If it was the equivalent, and please, I'm not trying to do racial profiling, but if it's the equivalent of our people, chances are that that kid would be you know, driving around in a Ferrari during the vacation, enjoying time. But certain families, especially the families that are gen generally known to be trading-related, 
that child would go and sit in the store like every other worker, learn the ropes of trading, learn how to sell on the storefront. And so in future down the line, that child is pretty much ready for the second or the third generation of trading. So yes, some people are born entrepreneurs, but it is possible to train oneself to be an entrepreneur. And the thing is, once you have saved that 20% and it starts to add up over time, one of the things you could do with it is to start a business. The easiest business to start for people who believe that they are not born entrepreneurs is look for the things that you do with ease. What is your hobby? What is the one thing that you don't struggle to do? What is the one thing that you would happily do even if you're sleeping? What is the one thing that when they wake you up with very little effort you would be able to do? That generally can serve as a guide to what you could potentially do in terms of entrepreneurship because it comes with very little effort. Then people ask, do I have to stop my job? No. This is what we call side hustle. And a lot of people side hustle. They start it, it's like a joke. Eventually, it starts to gain traction. And at some point, you actually realize that the side hustle is bringing more money than the main hustle. Then you know it's time to actually quit and go and start something. Some people have the school of thought that if you believe in it, you're starting a business, stop what you're doing, go and start. I don't have a view. But my thing is that if what we're doing is want to follow the consistent process of building wealth, then I always encourage, start that side hustle. Let it start to gain traction. Let it start to earn something. And then at the right time, you would know when the time is there to actually jump ship. But if you're the type who believes in, OK, it's now stopped, it's up to you if you feel right about it. But one of the first things you could use, the investment you've put away under the 20 principle is entrepreneurship. And then with these sessions later, we have other people who are going to talk about entrepreneurship into more detail. So I would leave it there and then not go too much. Then the next one is land and building. Um, one of the greatest threats to wealth creation is inflation. And the easiest way to explain inflation to you is that when Tiko, you remember the car Tiko, Akolaokoin? When it came first, it was four million. You know what four million is in today's money? No, 400 Ghana. I know because I bought one Tiko. Well, actually, well, my mom. But when Tiko came, it was 400 CDs. And this was in the year 2000. Barely 20 years ago, Tiko was 4 million as 400 CDs. Today, the equivalent of Tico is uh, Deu, Deu Matis or Atos or some of those cars. They're going for 20,000 CDs. So in 20 years, the value of the car, 400, 10 times is 4,000. 50 times is 20,000. So it is the equivalent of, is it 500 or 5,000% increase? between the year 2000 and today, that's inflation. The value of 100 cities in your hand today is not 100 cities tomorrow. And that's why the concept of investment is very important because most people predict, no, I have one house, it's okay. Oh, I have two houses, it can end. Inflation is one of the greatest threats to wealth creation. And if you look at it in context, maybe look back when we were young, we had a lot of friends, we knew a lot of families that at the time, based on the context that we lived in, were super wealthy. The difficulty is that for a lot of those families, you look back today and you can't find the wealth. You know of a childhood friend whose father had seven cars. You look back today and you ask, what happened? Inflation eats away at wealth in a very rapid pace, which is not visible to the eye. So effectively, Anybody who bought a Tico 20 years ago and, for example, did not drive it, kept it in a garage, but just made sure it was always serviced, it was always serviced and the parts were in working order. Today, if they pull it out of the garage, they could sell it for 20,000. It means that their money, if it was an investment, the 400 CDs they invested 20 years ago would have yielded the equivalent of 5,000% return. But if you had just held that 400 CDs under your pillow, those days, 4 million was big money. Today, that 400 cities, you can't go to the market. So now, so the second 
thing in the investment is land and building. Now, the advantage you have with land and building, the reason I'm going to a bit more detail with land and building is that it tends to be a good protector for inflation. Because in a, what we call efficient market hypothesis, in a relatively efficient market, the rate of increase in prices of the land and building is significantly above the value of inflation. So over time, the land or the building that you've purchased will be able to match its value over and above inflation over a 20-year period. Now, I can tell you this for a fact because 20 years ago, some of the lands that my parents bought at what was then 10 million, which is today what, 1,000, is going for $200,000. 20 years ago, the lands in Cantonment were going for $5,000. Some of them were going for $10,000. Yes. I know somebody who bought a land 20 years ago in Cantonment for about $25,000 an acre. Today, it's a million dollars. So land and building tend generally to be the biggest protector of inflation. The only difficulty is that by their nature, it takes substantial capital to purchase. So what we do is when you're discussing investment and you come to land and building, is the one area where I'm generally comfortable that if you can take a loan and buy a land, the loan should be a CD loan. Don't take a dollar loan because the problem is, the other risk towards creation is currency fluctuations. If you take a CD loan, in the first year, it looks a lot. By the second year, inflation has swiped 10% of it. If you take a 30-year mortgage in CDs, generally speaking, it is anticipated that by the 10th year, the balance left is so immaterial that you are able to pay it off even from your regular income. But if you take a mortgage in dollars, by the 10th year, the depreciation in the CD, especially if your income is CD, would have been so significant that by the 10th year, you cannot sustain your payment in dollars. So if people are able to, one of the good ways to build wealth is through land and building. Buy a land, litigation-free land, please. Otherwise, then it becomes a liability, if you remember. Buy a land, take a loan and buy, take a mortgage, buy a property. When you finish paying the first one, if you can take another one. So for somebody who, for example, has a home that they live in, and you have difficulty in saving or meeting this 20% rule, one of the ways to punish yourself into forcefully investing is to take a mortgage and buy a second property, provided you would get tenancy for that property. Now what happens is that whether you like it or not, the mortgage is deducted at source, so you don't have control over it. But then this asset is increasing in value, and it's able to increase in value relatively significantly more than the value of inflation. But it's also helping to force you into the discipline of saving, because whether you like it or not, the deduction will be made on your salary. And hopefully, over time, that property will be able to hold its value. A good example is um, Chado, where we call Chado, behind Trade Fair. Um, a very good friend of mine, um, we'll mention names for this purpose, called me about 10 years ago. He's like, oh boy, they say some Chado, make you go buy land. I'm like, look, please, you all this, you're interested in me. Because I actually didn't know what Chado was at the time. It's like, oh, it's an area, it's actually in town, it's the last frontier because there's no other place that's close enough to town that has that much size of land. And so what it means is that eventually they will do the road. So let's buy. I was like, Charlie, me, I'm not interested. I want to buy shares and things. It's like, what do you have to lose? Okay, come and buy a few. So I said, okay. So we went there. Initially, my plan was to buy one. We started talking, cut the story short. Somehow we ended up buying 10 plots in total, different transactions. But at the time we paid about 10,000 CDs, roughly, a plot, which I was angry because I found it very expensive. Well, this is 2010. 2019, nine years after, a plot of land in Chado is $100,000. And good luck if you find one, because most of them are full of litigation. Once it was obvious that the, the road was being done, Four years ago, there was a mad rush for the place. Some of the lands were sold over three, four, five, six times. But those of us who went in early, the chiefs were begging us to buy the land. I still remember. And I was like, why did we buy 10? We should have bought 100. But this is, just gives you an idea how 
land and building relatively, I mean, this is a very isolated case. It doesn't mean that you always have, so, but basically 10 years ago, what was 10,000 cities is $100,000 today. And we have a friend who bought like 40 of them. And so for doing very little, he's created his own world. Like Warren Buffett always says, if you don't find a way to make money when you are asleep, you die working. Because if every money you spend is money that you earn by working, it means that when you are sleeping, you are not earning money. So you will have to work all your life. And what he says is, if you don't find a way to make money whilst you are sleeping, it means that you will die working. Or basically, you are going to work for the rest of your life. Hello? Can I go on? So under investment, we've looked at entrepreneurship. We've looked at land and building. The next one is bond. Bond is, the easiest way to describe it is fixed deposits. So you have 10,000 CDs, you can put it in the bank. They take your money, they work with the money, and they give you some of the return, and it takes some. Now, um, most people know of fixed deposit, most people know of savings account. I beg you, no matter what you do, and if there's a banker here, forgive me for spoiling your business, never, ever put your money in a savings account. In fact, if what you like to do is to put your money in savings account, bring it to me, show me proof how much your bank gives you for your savings, I'll give you twice that amount, and I'll go and work with the money and pay you. The, the savings account is a good way to start to build discipline by keeping money away, but once you get into the discipline, do not, under any circumstance, leave your money in a savings account. The reason is that the average savings account gives you what, 5%? Inflation is 10%. So if your money is in a, well, First of all, savings account is better than putting it under your pillow. I think let me start from there. Because when you put the money under your pillow, you know you have your 100 CDs there. But by next year, your 100 CDs is not 100 CDs. Yes, in paper it is 100 CDs. But what we call the purchasing power parity, one year from now, what that 100 CDs was able to purchase a year ago, it cannot purchase it now. And the simple test is take milk. If ideal milk is two CDs, means that your 100 Ghana cities can purchase how many units? 50 pieces of ideal milk. One year from now, ideal milk is likely to be three cities. Or let's say two cities, 50 pesos. So your 100 Ghana cities cannot purchase 50 of them. It will purchase 40. So it means that by sitting there, your money has lost value between year one and year two. So your money is yours, but it is eroding in value just by virtue of time, which is inflation. So if you have never saved, and the first way you can start the discipline is to put the money under your pillow. Fine, start. But after the third month, when you feel that, oh, you are now consistent, I beg you, move to the next step, which is savings account. But once you're able to prove the consistency of savings account for another three months, six months maximum, move the money away from savings account, put it in investment. Because savings account gives you 5%, inflation is 10%, which means that at the end of every year, you've lost half the value of your money in comparison to inflation. So if 100 cities can buy 50 tins of milk today, and next year by virtue of inflation or increase in prices, let's make it easier, I can buy 40. Now if you put the money in savings account, so that means that you've lost, you've lost 10 tins of milk effectively. Now, if you put the money in savings account, you get a little interest. What it means is that if that interest is equivalent of five, so next year you'll be able to buy 45 tins of milk. So it has saved you a little but it is actually not even protecting you. So at the very minimum, the minimum return you should be making in your investment is I plus X. And the formula I plus X means inflation plus X. X means any ratio. Even if you're making 1% above inflation, you're better off. Chase as much returns as you can. If you're making 10% above inflation, great. But be careful because there's something we call risk and reward. The higher the re return or the reward you make on an investment, the higher the risk. And so if you chase too much return and you sacrifice safety, you might go into the risk area. And then if something goes wrong, you might lose all the money. And there we are talking of what? Men's gold. Typical example. I have friends who made so much money from men's gold. They're like, oh, even if it's one month, let's go and put it. They're like, I'm okay. And I said, I hope you know it's a Ponzi scheme. Oh, the guy, Charlie, he has mines. I'm like, even Newmont Corporation, go and look at their mine. 
they don't make 120% per annum. I mean, the investment they have to put in to bring the gold out, if you annualize their returns, they are not making 120. And for the person to give you 10% per month or 120 per year, it presupposes he's making 240 because he's not Christ. He doesn't love you more than himself. So whatever he gives you, at the very least, he's making the same. Otherwise, then he also put his money in it and make the same. So the guy basically has to be making 240% return to be able to give you 120 per annum. You don't need an angel to prophesy to you that it is a fraud. And that's how Ponzi schemes work. So chase good return, but be mindful that there's risk. If it sounds too good to be true, it is not true. Nobody can give you 120% return. Yes, chase I plus X, which is inflation plus a margin, so that your money is not losing value over time but be reasonable in what you chase. Now, we're talking about bonds. Bonds is primarily people who take your money over a longer term period, put it into other ventures, invest it in businesses or whatever, but they give you a guaranteed rate of return. So it means that effectively like treasury bills, treasury bills is actually a form of a bond. The difference is that when you use the word bond, typically you're talking longer term rather than shorter term. Treasury bills, you have 91 days, that's three months, six months, um, one year. In some cases, it might go up to two years and three years, what they call the fi three-year fixed notes. But typically, treasury bills are shorter term. But when you talk about bonds, excuse me, they can go as much as 30, 30 years. So it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. In the US, you have 30-year bonds, you have 50-year bonds. Our market is not matured to the point where we're able to do 50-year bonds. But earlier this year, the government of Ghana issued a 31-year bond, which quite surprisingly was, was oversubscribed. So it was the first sub-Saharan market to issue a 31-year bond because the maximum was 30. So we pushed it one more year and went 31, and it was actually subscribed. Now, with this 31-year bond, it means that if you purchase this bond, every year you get a guaranteed return, and they pay twice a year what they call the coupon in June and in December. So if you're the type who doesn't want too much risk, you put your money in a bond and you'll be surprised. Some of the bonds in the market are yielding as much as 21% return. But this is the secret that even the government doesn't want you to know. Now, who takes these bonds? Com companies can issue bonds, but generally I don't encourage the company bonds because they are risky in the sense that if the company collapses, you lose your money. But when government issues bond, it's backed by what we call a sovereign guarantee. It means that to the extent that the country Ghana continues to be a country, and by God's grace we hope it always will, i.e. unless there's a coup d'etat or the constitution is suspended, your bond is safe. The government would always pay you your coupon. If they don't have money to pay you, they will borrow more money to pay you your... And that's why you see sometimes when government borrows, they pay maturing debt and they borrow. So your money would always be safe. Now, what that means is that for a 30-year period, your money is safe. Now, but because government is the one borrowing through treasury bills, borrowing through short-term bonds, and borrowing through long-term bonds, in fact, government's preference would be that you buy the short-term bonds, that's treasury bill, because why? Treasury bills is giving you like 12% today. I didn't check the rate, but roughly 12%. But the government bonds, which are the longer term, you can get as much as 20%. In fact, there was a bond that was issued, I think, last year, which is 21%. That's very high. So it means that if inflation is 10% and you are buying government bonds, that's giving you 21%. You are making inflation plus 102. So percentage-wise, you are making twice inflation. So you are very protected, even if your investment is entirely in the Ghana city. Now, have you noticed that these bonds are not public information? It's generally not marketed. If you go to your bank that want to invest, most likely you'll be told treasury bills. It's not supposed to be public information because if too many people move money away from the short-term market into the long-term market, it can create negative impact on the financial system. But for those of us, if you have the information, if you have money you want to invest, rather than treasury bill, which is not bad, that's about 12%. Inflation is 10%. You're getting 12% from treasury bill, so you're making inflation plus 2%, so that's good. But if you can, look for the bonds that you make as much as inflation plus 10 I think currently we have the energy sector levy at the ESLA bond, which is 19.75. We have the bond that was issued to pay up the, the BDCs, which is about 19.25.
we have there are a couple of uh, there are a number of bonds that have been issued recently most of which are trading uh, were issued between 19.25 and 19.75 and um, these bonds are also traded on the secondary market which means that if you go and buy it and you need your money back you don't have to wait until the 31 years you place it on the market and somebody else who is coming to buy it buys it so you get your money he then takes over the bond so not only do you get high return but it's also traded on the secondary market which means that you can buy and sell these bonds at any time of course, subject to demand and supply, but most likely there will always be demand on the bonds because their rate is significantly higher than treasury bills. Now what it also does is that it gives you guaranteed consistent income over a period. And usually when we're doing investment planning for especially older people who are coming to a windfall, let's say um, anybody who is above 56 today would still receive the cap 30 I think it's 58 because they're facing it out in two years. The old cap 30 system where on retirement they give you a huge lump sum. Now they face it out into monthly pensions. But if you get that huge lump sum, one of the things a financial planner can do with you is to sit down with you and structure an investment such that you can put a substantial portion of that money in bonds. And at 20%, which is a pretty decent return, you can plan that income to give you a recurring sort of monthly remuneration over your retirement period. So if somebody got, let's say, a million, okay, let's say 500,000, let's be realistic. If you worked for 35 to 40 years, a government employee with a decent job, it's possible to get up to 500,000 CDs under the old Cap 30 system. Now, if you were to put that in a government bond, a 30-year bond, for example, that's yielding 20%, so 500,000, what's 20%, 500,000? That's 100,000 CDs every year. Now, what a good financial planner can do for you is that, okay, if we know that inflation is 10% and you are making 20%, uh, every year, reinvest 10% of your return so that you hedge your principal against inflation and then spend the other 10%. So the 100,000 you are making on the 500, mm -hmm. put 50 back to reinvest it together with your original 500. So at the end of year one, you have 550. Then the 50,000 you made divided by four, 50,000 divided by four, 4,167 roughly. And so if somebody retired today under the government pension cap 30 and got 500,000, by simply planning well and putting the money in government bonds, they can walk away with 4,167 cities every month guaranteed for 30, 31 years whilst the actual 500,000 they invested is still there and every year you are topping it up with the 10% that you're using to protect against inflation. Now why is it important to protect against inflation? Because that's your 500, if you leave it at 500, 10 years from now it will probably be worth the net present value of 100,000. So once you are able to use part of the return to hedge the money equal to the value of inflation, it means that at every point in time, the value of your money is equal to the equivalent of what it was at the time you put it away. So that's the bonds. Um, unlike treasury bills, they are not sold on the open market. To buy a bond, you have to appoint a broker. But usually they charge you a small fee to, to do the purchase. You can walk to any bank and buy treasury bills over the counter, but you can't buy bonds over the counter because, well, the idea is that it's supposed to be made difficult to buy. It's only those who know who know. So if you have slightly more substantial money you want to put away, the bonds is a very good way and it provides consistent return over a longer period of time. And then the last one under investment is stocks. So we've looked at entrepreneurship, land and building, bonds, and then we have stock. Um, I want to be slightly cautious on the stock market because if you remember earlier, I said something about the efficient market hypothesis. The developing world generally our stock markets are not efficient. When we say efficiency, in finance, a stock market is supposed to react to the amount of information available. So if you had a company that's listed on the stock exchange and they say that, for example, Warren Buffett is coming to join the board, in a typical efficient market, overnight, that stock price can go up by 100% because everybody knows that the sage of Omaha is likely to triple or quadruple the value of the company. If they say, oh, this company is, is about, has just won a big contract, the value of the shares will quickly react. Now, in an efficient market, the reaction can happen in as quick as five minutes. But that's also because most of the trading of these stocks are automated. 
you have what we AI, artificial intelligence, certain algorithms which as soon as they pick the information, it triggers the buying and the selling. So if I'm sitting by my radio and I just heard an announcement that, oh, Goldfields has just won a $50 billion. If I have shares in Goldfields, I just call my broker, buy more Goldfields shares, and I quickly buy, let's say, a million CDs worth of Goldfields shares. Then as the, as the information starts sifting through into the wider market, over the next few days, the Goldfields shares would rally. So it would go up because now more people are buying Goldfields shares with the intent that over time they want to be able to benefit from the upside. Then a savvy investor will wait. At a point when you think it has peaked, maybe it goes up 30, 40% and it peaks, then you now sell out, which means that in a matter of two or three days, you can actually make 30 to 40% return on the stock market. But similarly, it could also go the other way. So now, if you look at the arrangement, I put the stock market last because it is the most risky of all the investment options. You could make very good money on the stock market, but you could also lose a lot of money in the stock market. But the thing about the stock market is that people who invest in the stock market tend to be emotional. In actual fact, when the stock market is going down, in reality, it's the best time to buy. When it's going up, it's not the best time to buy. But because the human beings, we are not always very rational, we tend to go in at the wrong time, and then that's why people lose money. A good example is that um, there's a lot of economists are predicting that the next financial crisis is upon us. And then we expect that latest by sometime end of next year, we're going to have another global financial crisis. The indices are there. There's something called the inverted yield curve. Let's not go into it. It's too technical. But basically, once the price of um, longer-term bonds start becoming, that's in the developed market, not in Ghana, start becoming more expensive than shorter-term bonds, then it means that people don't trust the market on a short-term basis. They are afraid, and so they are locking their money in for a longer term. It's usually a sign that a financial crisis is about to happen. But if you also look at the geopolitical situation of the world, trade tariffs, China, the US is about to hit about $11 billion worth of uh, tariffs on EU, on Airbus, because of the Airbus Boeing, there's about $100 billion worth of um, tariffs ongoing between US and there's Brexit. Potentially, we're going to have Frexit and Brexit because Germany and France are likely now going to have their own referendums. You have Scotland saying they're going to do another referendum to leave the um, what, United Kingdom. So the world geopolitical affairs is telling us that there's likely a financial crisis upon us. But most importantly, the stock market is so heated right now, it is unrealistic. I mean, three companies have so far surpassed the $1 trillion valuation mark. I think it's Apple, it's um, Amazon, and then Microsoft. They've all crossed the $1 trillion mark. So at the moment, the stock market is so high that the only other direction is down. So generally speaking, if I had shares in any company in the international market, I would be selling right now, holding on to my cash, and waiting for the crash to happen. Now, if I give you a typical example, um, let's take Google shares, which is trading at roughly $280, I think. I haven't checked it today. Now, when the global financial crisis of 2008 happened, the Google shares went to as low as $20. Today, Google shares is trading at $280. So if it went, to, if it went down to um, $20, now what it means is that currently, at $200, it would have gone up 10 times. Now, $280, it would have gone up approximately 14 times. So percentage-wise, if you had put, let's say, $100,000 into Google shares to buy the shares, today, at 280, your money will be 2.8 million. And this is only 10 years. So typically, when a financial crisis is looming, it's the best time cash is king to just start hoarding cash, obviously in, in hard currency, so that you don't get exposed to um, inflation and currency valuation. But if you were able to save, let's say, just $10,000, and then when, or if, so they don't see I'm a wizard, if the financial crisis should happen and the share market crashes and you put your $10,000 into buying certain safe shares, like for example, what they call the FANG shares, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, FANG, Microsoft and Google, no, Netflix and Google, Microsoft is not part. 
Netflix and Google, these shares generally everybody knows they would do well. So if you had $10,000 and the market crashes and you put it in, who knows, in 10 years, that $10,000 could be $100,000. And so the stock market is a good long-term investment bet. It tends to rise with the value of inflation. And then it tends to be the area where you could make overwhelming amount of returns. You could make bad losses, but you could also make very good gains. So with the stock market, it's a risk that you have to balance. If your risk appetite is not big, or if you are early to the investment game, generally a typical financial advisor will tell you to stay away from the stock market because you don't want to work hard and save 10,000, go and put the 10,000 in the stock market only for your money to end up becoming 2,000. It would demoralize you. So for the early stages of investment, it's better to do the safer, consistent ones, like you know, buy a bond or buy a piece of land or put in a small business to start a side hustle somewhere. And when it gets to a point where you think you're comfortable, then you can isolate a certain amount, let's say 20% of your portfolio, and decide to play a risk with it. Put it in the stock market. Now, you know you could lose it, and if you lost it, yeah, you're comfortable losing 20%. But if it goes the other way, that 20% could go up in multiples of 20 or even in multiples of 1,000, and then it could significantly accelerate the growth of your investment portfolio. Hello? Hi. So that's it under investments. Um, let's look back at the acronym. What have we spelled? Riches versus wealth, assets versus liability, the Babylonian strategy, begin now, and an investment. Rabbi. So, who's the rabbi? <laughs> well, it's somebody who, under the Jewish tradition, is, is more like a teacher or a wise person. And so the thing about investment is that we need to be wise. It is not the easiest thing to do. It's, um, investment is like, it's like a marriage. It has this interesting, um, it has this beauty, but it's a lot of hard work. Anybody who tells you that, oh, my marriage is there, we don't have problems, is lying. I mean, marriage can be sweet, it can be beautiful, but it's a lot of hard work. So I coined rabbi to show you that the difference amongst us is some would hear it. It's a, it's very, it's a nice talk to listen to. I mean, it's information which you don't have to do anything with it, but it's nice to know so that you can say, oh, I know about stocks, I know about bonds. But some would take it personal and decide to experiment with it. I had somebody talk about this 18 years ago, well, 19 years very soon, and it made a significant difference to my life. And I can trace almost everything to that one moment when somebody sat me down and told me these things in different language, but I went away thinking, okay, uh, well, that guy had a nice car. I mean, he looks cool. If what he, this is what he did to buy it, well, me too, when I grew up, I want to have such a car. I think I was 18. So if for nothing, just for shaggy reasons, I'll do what he says and see whether it works out. If it doesn't work out, what do I have to lose? So my advice is, I'm by no means a rabbi. You are your individual rabbis. Take this information. Some would make sense to you, some would not. Some would add value, some would not. Sift through it. Whichever one you think would be able to add value, whichever one you think that you can utilize, the most important thing is start now. And I'm going to add one last one, T. Now with T, this is where now we are veering into motivational talks. There's a very interesting thing about the thought process. The Bible says that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Um, this journey is tough, but I remember, I still can remember the, the friends I was with the day we had this, this conversation. And then some of them were like, oh, this thing doesn't work, it's just theory. Oh, this thing, look, look at my, my house, my father is for this thing, I will never be able to get here. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. So for those who think, oh, this is doable, I'm going to do it, you will be able to do it. For those who think, oh, this is theory, it doesn't work. This boy probably wants some lotto and put the money somewhere. He's coming to stand here and talk about principles. It won't work. 
So you need to think it and actually believe it. I'm generally not somebody who does this. I don't believe in the, a lot of these motivational things because you are the best motivator to yourself. So think and believe it's possible, which is the T, but I didn't want to do rabbit. Rabbit is not a very nice acronym, so <laughs> I stopped as rabbi. But we really have to start thinking about it. We need to believe it. We need to think it's possible. But the other thing about the T I also wanted to add is it also stands for time. Time is running out. One of the biggest crises globally in the developed world is the pension crisis. Now, we are the first generation who are poorer than the previous generation. If you look at all the generations, the, the baby boomers, the pre-baby boomers, the generation, the next generation, why all the way to the millennials, generally speaking, every generation has been richer than the previous generation. But we are the first generation that has become poorer than the previous generation. And here I'm not talking about Ghana, I'm talking about global markets because property prices are insane. The average millennial who finishes school and is working cannot afford to buy property. In fact, they can't even afford to rent properties. We are the largest generation that have had to resort to living with our parents because we don't have what we call a living wage. So time is not on our side. The best time to start is now. And remember the analogy of the 100 Ghana CDs. If you put away 100 CDs every month, and you are consistent at it for 30 years, and you get 20% return on your 100 CDs, and you do not break it after 30 years, you would have 3.4 million Ghana CDs. Thank you very much. We hope this sermon blessed you. If it did, will you consider sharing it with a friend? And if you're in Accra looking for a spirit-filled community to worship with, why don't you join us at Mikado Plaza, Aboni Junction, Accra, on Sundays from 9 to 10.30 a.m. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Accra Church and visit our website, accrachurch.org, for more sermons. God bless you.